AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for June 8th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today, uh, on the phone, we have Jim Clausing. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Thanks. Good to be back. All right. Good to have you. And on the couch here with me, I have Matt Kaiser, one of our other security analysts. How are you doing today, Matt? Pretty good, John. How about yourself? Good. So uh, let's jump into the first story. And I guess, unless you've been living under a rock this week, you probably have heard about the Office of Personnel Management breach that occurred. And uh, Give you kind of break this down for you a little bit in a nutshell, but uh, the long and short is about four million current and former government workers, their personal information. We don't really know what types of information, but they're saying some personal identifying information, social security numbers were stolen. Um, the breach was detected uh, around the April timeframe, but it looks like the attacker was probably in there um, as far back as late 2014 somewhere. Uh, FBI is working to investigate like they always would. Eyesight Partners actually put out a little blurb that they think they may believe that this is linked to the Anthem, or the same actor set may be related to the Anthem and Primera healthcare breaches that occurred, and we've talked about them on the show, I'm sure, at some point in the past. If that's the case, a lot of signs are pointing this direction that it's probably a China nation state type of thing going on here. So we've discussed this kind of stuff before on the show a lot. Um, mostly with respect to the private sector and government agencies, defense industrial base. They get targeted by these nation state actors who are trying to break into their networks, steal their intellectual property or other strategic intelligence that they can use to use in some other way, uh, however that might be. Um, I guess the couple of things I was going to mention, I think we always say this around this, this type of stuff is you're never going to be able to, um, never going to be able to stop all of these attacks. So the best thing you can do is try to be, um, you know, uh, be able to detect them as best as possible. And the industry is getting smarter about this. I think we're doing a, a good job in general, but uh, still a lot of stuff gets through. Um, unless it's a well-known toolkit that somebody's using, these actors are pretty crafty in terms of making their activity that they use for their remote access toolkits to be, um, to kind of blend in with the background noise of your network traffic. Um, having a good user education program, right? We always talk about that. We have a really good one here at AT&T in terms of letting our general user population be really aware of the dangers of clicking on, you know, spearfished emails or any kind of other types of uh, activities like rogue USB thumb drives just left around, uh, maybe in a parking lot or wherever. You don't want to just grab those and stick them into your computer. They could be Trojanized. And then the other thing I was gonna say, and I'll let you guys chime in here, with respect to OPM specifically, this attacker might try to parlay all this information that they got here about the four million or so former government workers identifying information. Use that to then spearfish them, maybe spearfish in such a way that it looks like, like let's say we were on the list there, you know, I get an email from Matt to me saying, hey, uh, check out this link about some security thing I found. So they'll do spearfishes like that, where they try to make it look like it came from somebody you know, 
um, in order to you know, lure you into a false sense of security. So that's a possibility that they need to be aware of. Um, I don't know. That's what I wanted to kind of mention about that. I didn't know if anybody else had any other insights or uh, thoughts about this particular uh, breach. If it was social security numbers and that kind of stuff that's out there, um, if, it, if it does get out into the hands of criminals, you know, then it's the, the same old thing that they seem to do after data breaches everywhere else. They tell you, you know, watch your credit report and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it may be worthwhile actually taking the, the next step and putting a, a lock on your credit where um, basically you can't open any new accounts in your name or anything without going through some additional hoops. There are some folks I know out there who have just decided that's their standard default setting now because of all these breaches over the last, you know, five, six, seven years that they're just going to leave their credit locked. It makes it harder to open, you know, new credit card accounts and that kind of thing. But um, it also prevents the bad guys from opening, you know, new accounts in your name. So just something to, to toss out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I keep thinking OPM has access to, you know, this information about who does and doesn't have a, uh, a clearance now and, and a, a target list of, I'm not going to say 4 million people in the U.S. have clearances, but, you know, it's still a sizable number of people in that database who might be subject to further targeting simply because they're privy to extra information. So it might not be that we have people trying to profit monetarily off of it, but there may be some sort of intelligence gathering you know, value to that data, if it truly is, a, you know, a state, you know, a nation state behind all this. Right. And I've heard some discussion, you know, um, on some of the news stations and whatnot saying, well, they might actually be trying to assess these four million plus users that have clearances or however many it is to kind of figure out, well, what, what makes a good candidate for clearances so that they can kind of um, if they want to get people into, um, you know, a U.S. security clearance program, then they know what would be, uh, make it a smoother path, so to speak, let's say. Um, that's all speculation. Uh, but I have heard that, you know, so that's what some of the people in intelligence are worried about uh, in terms of, you know, somebody like a nation state trying to put their own agents inside the U.S. government with clearances um, and trying to figure out, okay, well, can we use this information to figure out what would either rule them out or make them more likely to get their clearance go through. So, uh, interesting. Uh, data set apparently goes back to sometime in 1985, I think, was reported. Oh, the data set of what was actually stolen. Yep. Right. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty long period of time, right? Mm -hmm. So, interesting. Um, anyway, one to keep an eye out for. It's, you know, just like a lot of these other ones, there's a lot of these breaches that occur. Um, and that's kind of our job is to try to help defend and prevent that kind of thing from happening. Not that we're ever always going to be always successful, but um, in general, that's what uh, everybody needs to do. All right, so the second story we've got for the show here is uh, one that we cover pretty much monthly. Uh, Microsoft released their June patch set uh, this week, uh, Jim. So do you have some information on that one? Yeah, yeah. Today is Patch Tuesday, so uh, as happens every month, uh, Microsoft has released a bunch of patches. Um, this month they've released eight. They rate two of them as critical. For some reason they've skipped 
MS-15-058. I'm not sure they'll probably release that one later, but uh, so they start with MS-15-056 and go up to dash 064. As is the case pretty much every month, um, there's a critical update for Internet Explorer. I believe the IE uh, patch covers something like 12 or 14 CVEs, um, and they rate it as critical. Uh, one of those CVEs um, uh, was previously publicly disclosed, so um, I'm not sure if there are any working uh, exploits for it yet, but the uh, the CVE was out there earlier, so if there's not a working exploit yet, there will be shortly. The other critical one uh, was in Windows Media Player. Again, this one would be, you know, some sort of crafted, you know, video or something uh, that would be exploited that could that would allow remote code execution. Uh, not aware of any exploits in the wild for that one yet. Um, the other one where there is an exploit in the wild uh, at the moment is um, in what they're calling common controls, the, the Microsoft common controls. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, it's, it's actually the uh, IE developer tools. So even though the, there's an exploit out there, um, the tools are probably not uh, all that widely used. So it's probably not one to, to worry about too much. The, the ones that, um, that Microsoft rates as important that caught my eye are um, MS-15-059, which is uh, remote code execution vulnerability in Microsoft Office. They, they rate this with an exploitability of one, which means they expect to see exploit code within the next 30 days, but they rate, rank it as important which um, which may mean that it ju they just it requires you the user to click on a link but we know that users often click on links so uh, the other one that caught my eye was uh, ms15-064 which is a privilege escalation in microsoft exchange this one could be used in an enterprise to potentially you know, elevate privileges, maybe get uh, admin or domain admin in a domain environment. So that's one to keep an eye on. Again, there's no exploit in the wild at the moment. And, um, and Microsoft only rates it as important, but they generally only rate privilege escalation as important. Um, so that's, that's one to keep an eye on. Again, as we say every month, you know, uh, these need to be tested and to the extent possible deployed, you know, ASAP because, you know, once these are out there, the bad guys are going to be reverse engineering them immediately. So, uh, yeah, so eight, eight bulletins this month, Microsoft rates, two of them critical, uh, the rest important. And like I said, I think there are a couple other ones that we really need to keep our eye on. Uh, over the next few days and weeks, but nothing, nothing really uh, 
out of the ordinary for for the monthly patches. Okay. Uh, so there you have it. Yeah, like you said, very important to get those patches installed sooner than later. That's for sure, as soon as possible. The the one thing that came to mind while you're rattling those off is if I was a bad guy, which I'm not, mm -hmm. uh, like an advanced persistent threat actor, I would want to leverage that Microsoft Office vulnerability to weaponize some documents, send them to my target, and then once I compromise them, I'm going to use that exchange privilege escalation to compromise the mail server. So that's like the that's like the two primary things APT guys do right. uh, in terms of getting in. And then once they're in, the first thing they go after is the company email to try to figure out what this company is up to and certain things like that. So just to kind of yep, that's that's why I that's why those two caught my attention too, and why I mentioned them is you know, those are the things that the bad guys are going to go after. Yeah, absolutely. So just trying to illustrate an example of why it might be more important to you to get these installed. Not to say that somebody's definitely going to use it for those purposes, but that's like uh, a very common tactic for uh, some of these advanced persistent threat actors, uh, as well as other actors. Like we also saw um, in terms of weaponized documents, I think we covered this story in the past few weeks where uh, resumes were getting sent through some of these um, uh, resume finding services that are out there and they kind of get sent into the resume finding surface and then to the to the actual uh, hiring manager and then they open it and they get infected so that's another way that you know some of these actors will kind of vector their targeted uh, weaponized documents into companies that they're interested in so because they know that someone in HR's job is to do nothing but open resumes all yep. day yep. yeah pretty much and they might not be the most they're obvious they're probably not security people Hopefully they've got a good, you've got a good end user awareness education program to be careful about opening documents and, and clicking on links. Um, but uh, you know, that, that's a tactic that they've been using over the past couple of months here. So, uh, so moving on to the next story, um, it looks like one that you were looking at, Matt, uh, related to the internet of insecure things again. I guess there's a big, you got some, some yeah, updated so, information here. So this was an interesting, uh, I'm going to call it a release. Um, so a group of master's students at the, I hope I said this right, Universidad Europea de Madrid in the Spain. The University of Madrid. Pretty much. <laughs> released a, a basically 60 vulnerabilities in one go against 22 different Internet of Things platforms, mostly modems and um, customer premise equipment. Like if, if your ISP sends you a very specific router that you hook up and they, if they provide service through that, we're talking that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is this runs the gamut of all the the same old IoT vulns we've been seeing for a very long time. Uh, a, a number of them are are devices that Telefonica, which I believe is a Spanish ISP, gives out. Like I was saying to their customers, there are a number of other smaller or not smaller but less represented ISPs in there. Uh, Vodafone and Orange being two of them that people might recognize. Mm -hmm. um, these vulnerabilities seem to mostly affect those devices. And they may not have much of an impact for American users, but overseas users would probably want to take a look, see if their devices are on this list. And if they are, if you have the option, take them off the network until you're sure that a patch has been released. Um, one of the things that I, I, I'm not very surprised about, I'm a little bit sad about, is that these kind of vulnerabilities, the majority of them are web vulnerabilities. There's nothing very specific to the Internet of Things here, except that they all, these devices all tend to have, you know, web... Um, control features, you know, from, from within right, the network, you would log in. Exactly. Right. So, I mean, it's, 
it's sad that most of the vulnerabilities that we know about from the IoT devices tend to be these sorts of web-based things, uh, which makes them vulnerable to, I think we talked about either in the last show or the one before, things like that ex exploit kit, where if you can bounce the attack off someone's browser and, and towards the device, they would be vulnerable in that way as well to the outside world. Right, and that's why these cross-site request forgery type vulnerabilities are a big deal, is that's how the bad guys bounce them through your web browser inside your you know home network back towards your these internet of things web interfaces precisely right right yep. and there's a number of those at the top of the list so this isn't the first time we've seen such a large dump of of iot or embedded vulnerabilities um, actually at defcon 22 a group called gtv hacker who is renamed to exploiteers if you want to go look them up um, they released a whole bunch of, of device vulnerabilities in the same way, all in one go. Um, so I think the takeaway from that is that these aren't necessarily hard to find. You know, if a group of master students can do this, or you know, a bunch of hackers on the internet can, it's, they're, they're, very, they're very low hanging fruit sorts of things. Right. And the problem is we're still seeing this. And this, it, it kind of gets needs to get addressed. I realize a lot of these are very, you know, low-cost devices, and people treat them like it's it's junk hacking. But the impact is still very real. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like we said before, most of these don't have very good patch management processes. So people buy them, they put them on their network. You know, they you, you might not ever upgrade the thing until years later, even though patches have been released. Um, I've noticed that some of the vendors are actually getting better about that now, where they have automatic patch updates. Um, I actually just bought a, a home router recently, a new one. Uh, it was a Linksys, actually, and it actually has an automated update, um, and they hook up to a cloud account and all this stuff. Um, in any event, uh, most of them are smaller embedded devices, don't have a lot of high-performance power, although they're getting more powerful as time goes on here. It's one of those things, if you have one of these, I would recommend going to take a look um, to see if you're on the list there maybe assess how critical is your vulnerability, because I'm assuming they're not all the same, and see if, uh, you know, see if you can do something to mitigate that. I'm not saying go get a new one, but, because um, uh, who knows what the next model has. So you would think though, with such limited processing power and such limited space to actually have a web interface, they write some tighter code, right? So, <laughs> but yeah, I guess you never know. Maybe the fact that they're uh, cramped into a small kind of uh, footprint that they don't really have the ability to really write a very robust interface you know, most of the like time. Input validation code because it's not necess like strictly necessary right. for what it, yeah. Or they may not think it is that. because it's only exposed to the land side. But like we talked about, you know, there's some of these actors who can kind of, you know, run a drive-by that runs inside your browser that goes and attacks your, um, your home router from the inside. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, good story. Another one that we should probably just keep a keep an eye on. We know we've seen all sorts of Internet of Things stuff get compromised. DVRs, home routers, residential gateways. Uh, what are those? Uh, your uh, your disk drives that are connected to the network. Yes. There, yeah, net, network attached storage. Um, so all these things are out there, and it's just a matter of making sure. Oh, I, my other thought was is when these things get compromised. <laughs> I've said this before as well. Um, you rarely will actually know that your DSL modem or your residential gateway is compromised because it's at the very edge of your perimeter network. So you won't even see that traffic. Unless you have something like you're one of us and you're actually watching the stuff between your residential gateway to your, um, you know, to your internet provider, 
uh, but most people are just looking from the from the, the gateway in towards their own home network. So if somebody compromises it, you might not ever know that that happened. And years could go by where somebody's using it. Um, and they don't usually, your device doesn't usually reboot. So it'll persist in memory, stay there, and, uh, and continue to run uh, the malware that, that they deploy on there. Um, all right, moving on to the next story, talking about malware, uh, but malware of a different sort. Instead of running on IoT devices uh, and vulnerabilities in those, uh, I guess there's been some uh, recent malware targeting point of sale systems, Jim? Yeah, yeah. I, we talk about these, it seems like you know, every other month or so, there's another, uh, another report of malware targeting point of sale devices. And this one was actually uh, a report that came from Trend Micro. They discovered the a family of malware that they're calling Malampos, Malam POS. This malware uh, at the moment is targeting you know, a particular uh, brand of POS device, point of sale devices that Oracle acquired last year. But the the interesting thing about the this malware is that um, it, it disguises itself as NVIDIA video drivers, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, the, again, the, most of these point-of-sale devices are embedded um, Windows XP. I'm, I'm not sure if, the, if this particular brand is XP or if it's embedded Windows 7, but a lot of them are still XP. And uh, so you're going to look for, if you're, if you're even looking at what processes are running on there, you know, you see the display drivers. Well, NVIDIA is a typical driver that you're going to have, you know, type of video card. So type of video drivers you're going to have in there. Um, <clears throat> and it actually uh, does, it scrapes memory looking for um, the credit card information. You know, the, the stuff on the magnetic tracks. Um, it's got a couple of... Uh, regular expressions that it uses to look for the track one and track two data off the off the magnetic strips and it looks for it in up to a hundred different processes so it's it's actually rather robust and while the it appears that this particular one was targeted at that at that particular line of POS devices that Oracle just acquired. The program appears to have capabilities that it could um, target other other things, other POS devices than that, and um, and potentially, um, you know, as I said, it's looking for a hundred different processes, so lots of different uh, types of software running on the POS device that it's aware of and knows to look for their you know, particular memory footprint and look for uh, the credit card info in their in that memory footprint. Um, so it this particular family has a lot of capabilities that, or or appears to have a lot of capabilities that it might not be tapping yet. So it looks like this is one that's under active development and is one to keep an eye on. The, the report from Trend Micro actually has some really good stuff, and it's only about 12 pages long. So uh, if you are into this kind of thing, 
Uh, I highly recommend that you actually go and read the whole report. Um, they've got a Yara signatures in there. Um, they show the regular expressions uh, that they're using to try to detect the track one and track two info. Um, so it's it's helpful to understand. You know, if you're like me, it wasn't entirely clear on what the format of this track one and track two data is. There. Um, the report actually goes into how they're looking for that. So, uh, some interesting stuff. The the data that they extract, then they they use a simple uh, substitution cipher and store it on the device in a file that's got a, a name that looks like an NVIDIA DLL, um, but is actually just a data file. Um, and I'm it isn't clear to me. Uh, exactly when they uh, or how they attempt to exfiltrate the data again that's a part of the this that I haven't uh, actually studied in detail yet but um, so there are there are some uh, indicators of compromise that could be used here to look for for this stuff but it's uh, as I said it, it looks to be a piece of malware that's under active development and it has some capabilities that, while they're not particularly um, super advanced, uh, are worth keeping an eye on. Right, right. Stan and I actually yesterday were playing around with this mount. Well, I shouldn't say playing around. We're analyzing it in Ollie Debug uh, and stepping through the code, um, just trying to figure out if there is some kind of command and control that they relay the stuff back up to. I didn't get very far yesterday with it, um, but. Uh, an interesting aside that maybe you could look for if you're kind of a novice user, uh, an easy thing to go look for is uh, Jim mentioned that it registers a service for, as the NVIDIA driver. Um, I forget the full title, but it's like NVIDIA something something driver, but the E in driver is a three that they use, so it's D-R-I-V-3-R. So that's a very obvious tell if you actually go look at your control panel services on your Windows machine and you see that, then you might want to go take a closer look to make sure that you don't have this on there. Interesting piece of malware though, this point of sale stuff is, you know, it's really kind of come into its own in terms of a flavor of malware. You know, we talk about lots of flavors of malware like ransomware and some of these crimeware and then now point of sale is kind of come into its own as its own kind of uh, family, so to speak, of, of a malware family. So, um, you know, go keep an eye out for it. And if you do have point of sale systems, make sure you have tight security around them. Uh, sometimes people overlook them, just like they overlook the IoT devices, I think, because they just assume it's just this thing that I bought from somebody, I'm gonna put it on my network, I'm gonna trust that whoever I bought this from did their you know, due diligence in terms of getting it secured. But sometimes they did, it's just what you did around it, you kind of left it a little too open. So um, in any Yeah, event, uh, that's one of the things that we, Every time one of these new point of sale things comes up, we talk about it. The, you know, your point of sale devices need to be on their own isolated network. Mm -hmm. You know, where they're not on. Most of the time, they really shouldn't be talking to the internet. They should be talking just to, you know, their their back office uh, components and that kind of thing. Um, even though these are Windows devices you know you don't really want to allow web browsing and that kind of thing from your point of sale devices so you know there are ways that you can 
isolate them and lock them down to protect yourself a little bit. But as you said, it's it's not clear from the report how the malware gets on there either. So we saw in one of the, the big ones, I think it was the Target one from a couple of years ago where it was pushed out from, you know, from the management side to the point of sale device. It might not have been Target. I don't even, I don't remember now, but, you know, so it, it, a lot of pieces that need to be secured, but one of the things you can do is isolate them to the extent possible from, from the rest of your network. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Well, they'll still need to call out to validate credit cards and things like that, but if you know what you're doing, you can still... Yeah, and that might go through some other centralized server or something, too. I don't know how they, you know, some of these things get deployed, so um, the individual point-of-sale machines might not go right out to a credit uh, card. So if you've got two or three terminals in your restaurant, for example, you may have a master that it all goes Possibly. out. Possibly. I don't okay. know how it's deployed, but... Um, no. In, uh, you have a good point, though. You could isolate it and still firewall it off so that it can only talk to the credit card authorization service um, and not to anything else. Um, so that's always a good practice. Uh, so the next story we have uh, on the lighter side, so to speak, although maybe not so light if you become compromised by this, um, but I guess someone's converted some toys to be uh, garage door hacking devices. Yep. So this is um, the latest from Sammy Kamkar, who people might remember from back in the day, uh, the Sammy worm on MySpace, that was him. Mm -hmm. He's made a name for himself with some pretty high profile hacks. Uh, this one I, I think is kind of interesting because it's, well, let's just dive into it. There's a device called the IME. It's actually a device from 2010. Uh, and it's very hard to get these days. You can still find them on eBay. People have claimed to be able to find them for as little as $10. But if you look today, they're always about $100 to $200 because of their rarity. Uh, and for another reason, which I'll get to, Sammy has taken this device and turned it into a garage door code brute forcer. Okay. You walk up with the device. It's got a little antenna that he's hacked onto the outside of it. And you press the go button. A picture of Neon Cat appears on the screen. And garage doors start opening. Now, how did this happen? So the IME platform has uh, what's called a system on a chip inside of it. It's, it's like an all-in-one chip, and this one's designed for radio frequency communications. The original toy was designed so that people could send each other little over-the-air, not SMS, not internet, just little over-the-air messages using wireless. Mm -hmm. It's actually had a long history in the hacker community of being used for fun little things. Michael Osman of Great Scott Gadgets, I think is his company, they they he turned it into a wireless frequency display. So you could take a look at what, what sort of you know, wireless traffic was going on in the area. Oh, okay. uh, other people have, have found other uses for it. You could flash the firmware fairly easily with instructions that are online. Uh, and I think Michael Osman actually designed a bit of firmware for it that would allow him to open his own garage door, but just one code. Now what Sammy's code does is improves on this, um, looks at the frequencies used by several garage door manufacturers, and basically bakes in the functionality to loop through all of those garage door open codes right, in a very quick a way. Limited number of pins, right? It's probably like a four-digit code or a six-digit code or yep. something, right? So I think the, this the really you know interesting, cool technical stuff that he did here. Um, it stands a bit on the shoulders of giants, if you follow what I'm saying. You know, the code is mostly there, but he's got some really interesting optimizations. You know, he doesn't break between attempting. He doesn't say send this code. Wait a second, send this code. It all just blasts straight through. And there's an interesting algorithm. Uh, I'm going to butcher the name of it as well. The Debrin De numbers or sequences. Okay. Um, and I actually came across this a while back. 
without knowing what it was called. It's a way of taking a set of numbers. So if you wanted to try all the pins, like 000, 001, 002, if I wanted to do 001, 0001, that would cover both 000 and then 001 contiguously. So if you're not checking every three, you know, if, if you can just keep spinning digits and it'll look for that, those three numbers you're looking for anywhere in the sequence, you can design a sequence to minimize the number of, of digits you actually have to send, saving you a whole bunch of time. So I actually came across this. There was someone had released these sequences for um, phone, phone voicemail. You know, you used to be able to dial into your own personal voicemail by knowing a three-digit number. Yeah. Well, somebody came up with these number sequences, I guess, either through knowing the algorithm or on their own. You could just, you know, press play on your tape recorder and it would go da 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 play all the numbers back. And eventually it would say, okay, that's the, the passcode. You are now into the voicemail system. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's been around for a little while, I think, but it's interesting that he applied it here in order to shorten the time that he needs to open up garage doors dramatically. So there's some cool optimizations here going on. I'm not sure it's entirely, you know, amazing research. It's not like someone came in out of the blue and said, here's a child's toy. It now opens garage doors. It's like a five-year process of, of improvement on the platform and figuring out how to flash new firmware. You know, and Michael Wassman and Travis Goodspeed and a couple other people have been involved in working on this platform. But now you've got it packaged in a little pink device that you can walk down the street and open garage doors with. Right. So that's fun. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's... <laughs> it's not fun if you have a garage door that gets uh, opened up. So that's, that's <laughs> important to note, is that um, not all garage doors are susceptible. Um, if you've got a garage door that supports rolling codes, which is to say that every time you send transmit, um, your, your, your fob will send something different, and the, the, the box will pick it up and say, okay, new code, mm -hmm. it's valid, and then open the door for you, you're not necessarily vulnerable to this. It's only with systems where the, the code stays static all of the time and never gets changed, where you can brute force it because no matter how many attempts you, you make, you won't be cycling through the rolling code sequence that the modern ones have. Um, so if you want to know what you've got, you can usually crack open either the, the garage door opener controller itself or the fob, and if there's a set of dip switches on the inside, that means that, that the code is programmable but only to, to one actual code. Right, right. So that suggests that you're in the market for a new garage door opener at that point. So I guess um, either get a new garage door opener or you have to install fail to ban on your garage door, right? If <laughs> anybody's not that. familiar with fail to ban, that's basically how you try to prevent brute force attacks on your SSH or Telnet or whatever on your devices, mm -hmm. which I'd recommend you look into if you, <laughs> if you actually have those devices exposed to the internet on SSH. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so interesting story. Uh, it reminded me also of, I think we did a story quite a ways back about somebody who did something with Zigbee, which is a home automation, mm -hmm. I think it might have been Zigbee, which is like a home automation protocol. And they mailed a package with a rogue device uh, that spoke Zigbee to an address. And then it was close enough, once it arrived on their doorstep, to talk to the internal network and break in. Um, I forget, this was a couple of years ago, I think we talked about it, so. Are you sure it was the show and you're sure it wasn't CSI Cyber? <laughs> well, yeah, it does sound <laughs> kind of futuristic. No, I'm pretty sure it was the show. Um, but uh, in any event, so, you know, there's a lot of these home automation things. Uh, and to me, that kind of worries me more because I don't want to even, you know, want to make sure that my home is secure as well as my computer. Well, but it's not confusing. More so my this home. is definitely not home automation tech. No, this is, right, this it's is not. plain old RF garage door opener land. Right. It's separate from that. Right. Although some systems integrate with your garage door now, you know, some of these home automation things that you can get and 
they can uh, talk to your garage door just like this device could, but in a legitimate way. So um, anyway. Yeah, but in, in, anyway. in any case, it's, it is a concern because if you've got garage doors that are susceptible to this, this is something that criminals could use, open up the garage door, you know, and now they're inside. Even if you've got the door between the garage and the house locked, they're inside where they can hide from, you know, they're not visible to the street trying to break into your house. Right. So this is something to be somewhat concerned with. Right. So I will say that Sammy acknowledges that this might be a problem and has modified the code that he released. So then it's not fully functional. You have to know, he says you have to know at least a little bit about RF engineering in order to make the code that he released actually do what he claimed it would. Right. So it's, some, some street thug is not going to necessarily be able to... Not necessarily. <laughs> but of course, there's, there's always the temptation for some smart aleck out there who does understand RF to go and say, hey, Sammy, here's the bug in your code. Right. Post that online, and then it, it doesn't much matter anymore. Right. All right, well, something to consider. Um, and even though it is a kid's toy, I don't think it's or it's derived from a kid's toy, it's not necessarily kid's play. You know, it's not, it's not a simple thing to do um, in terms of you know, working with the firmware on these types of devices and, and hacking them to do this type of thing. Um, but uh, interesting nonetheless. All right, um, so let's move on to the internet weather. And we have a couple of things to look at, but nothing super major uh, in terms of um, you know, uh, troubling findings, or at least not new troubling findings. Uh, the, uh, in terms of the top most probe ports, these are the ports that get scanned the most, irrespective of how many people are doing it, just in sheer volume, how many uh, scans are against these particular ports. Port 80 TCP is at the number one position. It moved up six positions. We'll take a look at that and why that is in a slide in a, a bit here. 135 TCP, which is your NetBOS file sharing kind of thing. I forget exactly what, it's an older protocol. I don't think we really use it anymore. We talked about this as well. Uh, there's been some increased scanning on this again. I keep meaning to go look at our honeypots to see if I've captured any of that, and I never remember to go do that. But hopefully next week I will. In the past when we had seen it, it was trying to use like a very typical password or something. Um, and just try to hit everybody. I guess probably just trying to see if anybody responded with that typical uh, NetBIOS password in order to get into it. But um, in any event, we'll try to dig that up again. 23 TCP Telnet, that's been static at the third position in the list. That's again, your IoT devices, or in general, it's a lot of these Internet of Things devices that get compromised, usually via port 23 TCP Telnet. Um, and then they start scanning for more of these so that they can build their botnet out but even bigger. 22 TCP, which is SSH. Again, similar. There's a lot of actors out there scanning for this so that they'll deploy malware on there as well. There's a lot of IoT devices that listen on SSH as well, but as well as Linux machines just in general that do. 443 TCP is your HTTPS. That could just be for scanning to find uh, servers that are supporting that. Could be Heartbleed scanning, could be all these other various vulnerabilities that have been uh, uh, talked about in the wild uh, lately. 8080 TCP, that's usually proxy scanning, although I always remind people Tomcat's on that port, and we know that there's certain actor sets out there that like to scan for Tomcat and weak default passwords on your Tomcat administrative port, which is that what that is. So secure it if you have that exposed to the internet. 445 TCP is your SMB. There's various worms that scan on that. 1433 TCP is your Microsoft SQL Server. That's moved up five positions. I actually pulled a chart on that. 
but it's not that interesting. Even though it moved up five positions, it's really not that much more volume than it was at position 13 last week. So it doesn't really show any large movement, even though it did move up a couple of, quite a few positions there. Uh, 1900 UDP, which we've been talking about a lot, is your simple service discovery protocol, SSDP. We're seeing a lot of reflection activity with that. And we're actually gonna talk a little bit about reflection in a slide in the future here, a couple of slides down the, the, the pike here. So uh, keep that in mind when we get to the, that point. And then the ICMP echo requests are probably just, um, just uh, background noise. We see lots of ICMP in general. So the ADTCP, the area that I kind of wanted to point out that is the increase here is what's under this red bar that I kind of highlighted here. And you can kind of see that excluding this big, huge thing. So this big, huge thing back in the middle of May or early to mid-May timeframe, we talked about this. This was actually a denial of service attack against a Chinese gaming company on ADTCP where they actually were flooding like a slash 22 that they might have owned or something like that. Uh, so it was a pretty wide address space that they owned all of and whoever was attacking them for whatever reason uh, was hitting every IP instead of just trying to hit like a single IP that is at their address space. They're basically just trying to flood their router that's gonna handle all of that traffic. Um, so that's what this big lump is in here. Um, this is actually attack traffic, not scanning attack traffic. But because they were trying to hit so many sources, in our data it looks like scanning traffic. Because that's kind of how we differentiate scanning from an attack. Usually attacks in our, in our data here is more to a single point. When it looks like somebody's trying to send SIN packets to a bunch of different addresses, that's what kind of flags it in our system as a scan source. And we're actually going to talk about that in an upcoming slide that's really confusing. That will be interesting. Um, so in terms of uh, who's doing this recent stuff over the past week or so here under this red bar, um, it's actually a small number of sources. There's a U.S. web hosting provider that's counting for a large portion of it, uh, as well as uh, a couple of IP addresses in China and the Czech Republic. You know, what they're up to, I'm not quite sure. They're probably just scanning for port 80 for various reasons, uh, you know, trying to identify machines that are listening on that. It could be that they're um, looking for your Internet of Things devices that have web administrative ports on port 80, which there are quite a few that have that. So that's one possibility of what might be scanning beyond just regular web servers. So here's the most sources probing. So this is kind of coordinated activity. This means that somebody told a bunch of devices to start scanning on these ports. And this usually is some kind of indicator of botnet activity or something otherwise. Not surprising, 23TCP Telnet is at the number one position. That's your IoT things. And it's actually a very large slice of the pie. We've talked about this before. I probably should have pulled a chart for this. I didn't get a chance to do that. But I would say this is maybe 30%. I don't know. It's definitely greater than 25%, right? of all scanning activity in total is accounting for telnet traffic. 445 TCP, which we've already discussed, you've got some ICMP stuff, which I'm just gonna ignore, because a lot of this is either echo requests or port unreachable backscatter type stuff. 27015 UDP is your Valve Half-Life gaming server. This just manifests to kind of look like scanning activity, but in reality it's not. This is an anomaly that's not really a security issue. 17788 UDP is that PP stream protocol, which 
we're not entirely sure what's up with that, but it looks like a peer-to-peer -peer kind of uh, video streaming protocol, possibly used for Chinese video type things. <laughs> uh, I'm not quite sure because it looks like a lot of the actors are in China um, that are utilizing this protocol, uh, but you know that's the only association we have so far until we actually see some real traffic there. Um, and as we always mention, if you watch the show and you have some more insight about some of this stuff that we talk about, please let us know. I'll give you the, uh, our email address at the end of the show. Uh, the real interesting one here, and I think this is the winner for in terms of most improved, although we really don't want something to improve here, but um, 80 UDP uh, moved up 86 positions. That's huge, right? So we've never seen anything move up 86 positions. But the reality of the situation here is this is erroneous. It's not really scanning traffic, and I'm going to explain that in a second, although I wish I had a better picture. But let's just take a quick look at what it looks like. So you kind of see here on the 80 UDP, and even though it's labeled HTTP, the, the well-known IANA service for HTTP uh, or, or 80 UDP is HTTP, but nobody really uses HTTP over UDP, although I will say Google has an experimental service that they're toying with um, to um, have HTTP run over port 80 UDP. But that's not what this is. Um, in any event, uh, you can see that yesterday and the day before, we had some 10,000, 7,000 scan sources all in unison trying to um, scan on port 80 UDP. If you're actually to look at that traffic, what it really is, is not scanning activity at all. It was uh, SNMP reflection activity. So we talked about SSDP, port 1900 UDP, uh, being a potential reflection. And we talked last week about this. I kind of described, so if I'm a bad actor, I can forge a packet. So let's say Matt is my target. I'm gonna, and his IP address is mattkaiser at att.com. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an IP address. But so when I create the packet, I put Matt's IP address as the source of my, uh, my packet, and the destination is to a SNMP, in this case, an SNMP reflection device. So I have a list of all these devices out on the internet that I know will ref that will answer an SNMP query. And since it's UDP, which is connectionless, I can create a packet, put a source IP of Matt's in there, I put a destination IP of the SNMP reflection, and I ask it a tiny little question. I say, hey, you know, SNMP device out there, what is your, give me, give me your entire SNMP state table. And when I do that, I make the source port also of my request to port 80. So source IP, Matt, uh, source port 80, destination port of the SNMP guy, destination port, uh, destination IP of the guy, destination port 161. Probably going too long on this. Anyway, that packet goes out to the guy, the SNMP reflection, and then he reflects it back to Matt. But when he does, he's going to send a lot of data. So my request is small. The amount of data that comes back to Matt is gigantic. Um, so it's kind of, I like to say, it's akin to me sending a, a, catalog, or a little card to Sears and Roebuck saying, please send me your catalog. And then they send a giant catalog to Matt instead. Um, so what they do, what's happening here is exactly what I described there. But instead of targeting one person for whatever reason, I don't know, this particular actor was up to a bunch of shenanigans. So they were sending 
spraying packets at the SNMP reflectors with all kinds of source IPs, fake source IPs, that were going all backscattering all across the internet. So to us, that looks like you got these SNMP reflectors out there trying to scan on port 80 UDP, which is how this manifests in this chart. Long story to get to the ultimate endpoint, um, but it's not a real issue um, in terms of this is mostly attack traffic, not really scanning traffic, looking for people listening on port 80 UDP. Um, enough said about that. I wish I had a better picture to show you DNS re or uh, reflection activity and how it works, but I think we have in the previous shows, so we could probably dig that up. Okay, uh, so that's the show for today. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, which we always appreciate if you do, please email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. That's a newer email address that we just moved to, so take note of that. It's attthreattrack at list.att.com. Uh, you can also find AT&T Threat Track Program on the AT&T Tech Channel, uh, and it's also available on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter as well. Our handle is at attsecurity. Uh, thanks, Matt, for joining the show. Thanks, Jim, as always. I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.